are back in the book of Galatians. As I mentioned in prayer, we're going to be in chapter 4. We left off at uh, verse, or we got through verse 20 of chapter 4 last time. We're going to pick up, uh, pick up at verse 21 uh, today and take it through the first verse of chapter 5 because that belongs in the previous paragraph, but we'll get to that in a little bit. But I want to start us off with just uh, a reminder of what this book's about. Let's just ask this question this way. Is salvation something that we do, or is salvation something that God does? That's really what this book sets out to, to settle in our hearts and minds. Is, is salvation something we do, or is it something that God does? Ultimately, at the, at the end of the day, is the decisive factor a work of God, or is it our work? So if you, if you told me that our salvation, that my salvation before God is de determined, for example, by my participation in prayer, well, I got a lot of questions. If, if prayer is something that I do. You know, so, so if it's determined by prayer or a prayer that I pray, you know, how much prayer does it take? Right? How, how, how many prayers, how heartfelt does that prayer need to be in order to count? How accurate does it need to be? I don't know if you're like me. A lot of my prayers just can't be that accurate. Sometimes I don't even know what to pray. Well, if you told me, well, actually, it's, it's your participation in worship that determines your peace with God. Well, then I got a lot of questions about that, too. Are you talking about worship like in everyday life, or are you talking about like church attendance? Are you talking about the quality of worship, or are you talking about the quantity of worship? How, how much worship? And what do I compare myself to to know if my worship is, is quality or not? Like, am I comparing my worship to, to that of angels before God in heaven? Is that the standard? I got a lot of questions if worship is, is, my, uh, is the means by which I, I, I make peace with God. If you told me that the ultimate factor is really boiled down to how much you know about the Bible, that one really makes me nervous too. Like how much of the Bible do I have to know? How much of the Bible do I have to read? Or better yet, this is me, how much of the Bible do I have to read and actually retain? If you're like me, you read a lot of stuff, but I mean, eventually it just starts spilling out. You can't retain it all, right? How much do you have to retain for it to count? Or maybe if you said, no, actually baptism, that's the thing that we need to do to seal the deal. That's what really matters. Well, I got a lot of questions for that too then if that's the case. Which version of Christian baptism is it that counts? There are several different versions, right? What's the right age? What's the right method? What's the right moment? I mean, what's the, uh, what, if I, what if I practice the wrong version of baptism? Am I out? Let's say that I got everything else in Christianity right, but I got my baptism wrong. What then? When we think about things that we do for salvation, it just makes me nervous. Like, if I, told, if I were told that it's actually acts of service or good deeds, that's what tips the scales in my favor, then I got a lot of questions about too. What, about that too, like what constitutes a good work, right? <laughs> you know, if you tell me I gotta go on a mission trip, how far do I have to go for it to count as a mission trip, <laughs> you know? Uh, yeah, I've heard one pastor say, well, our greatest mission field is in, is in our own backyards. I'm like, does that count? Is that a mission trip? Because I'm pretty frugal. I'd rather not pay the gas to go real far away. If I were told, well, actually, Cody, it's, it's your free will. It's your free will that, that, that ultimately, at the end of the day, factors into your salvation. That one makes me the most anxious of all. I got a lot of questions. How much free will are we talking about here? All right, do I have to choose God? Or do I have to really choose God? 
Or do I have to really, really, really choose God? How far do I have to free will in order for that to be enough free will to save me? Does that make sense? I don't even know if it does anymore. When I start talking about free will, it makes my head spin. I don't know about you. Do I have to choose the, the, the Lord my God with all my love, soul, strength, heart? Is, is, that what, is that what it is? Right? You've heard me say it many times before. I don't think I've pulled that off for 10 minutes, and I don't think you have either. I mean, what if, what if, if it is my free will, if it, what if it comes down to those moments in which I, just like you, use my free will to sin? Am I not choosing God in that moment? Well, functionally, no, I'm not. I'm choosing my own way. I'm rejecting God in that moment and choosing to live my own way. So in those moments in which we use our free will to sin, am I lost in that moment? Am I constantly going in and out and in and out of God's grace of flopping back and forth? It's, it, when you really start to tease these concepts out, when you really start to, to dissect them, it, get, it, 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 it turns your brain into scrambled eggs, right? And it makes you really insecure. How much religious activity do I need in my life to make myself right with God? Paul says... If you start thinking that way, and if that's the way you think, that it really comes down to something you think or do, as opposed to what God does, you are slaves. That's his word of choice to describe that way of thinking. If you're, if you're putting your hope and your ability to do anything religious, rather than putting your hope in Christ, you are a slave. And so he's writing the letter to the Galatians because they had enslaved themselves once again to that way of thinking, and they weren't living in the freedom of Christ. You ever see that viral video online of that uh, sheep that's stuck in the ditch, and like the farmer's out there grabbing him uh, to pull the sheep out of the ditch, and then the, the sheep prances around, you know, takes like three, you know, prancing hops, and, and it goes right back into the ditch again? <laughs> like, maybe you've seen that online. And so he has to go bail him out of the ditch. That, that kind of describes the situation in Galatia. Because the people predominantly were pagans in, the, in this area. They grew up worshiping false gods. Uh, Paul says you were worshiping that which by nature were not gods at all. You were just involved in a lot of religious activity. I came there, I got sick, you cared for me, and in the process I shared the gospel with you, you became believers. It's like they were pulled out of the ditch. They were saved pulled out of that ditch, and they're prancing around in the freedom of Christ that Paul taught them all about, the righteousness of Christ and the atonement of Christ that justifies us before God. And they prance around for not very long at all before they jump right back into the ditch, but this time it didn't look like pagan false god worship. This time the ditch that they were in was Judaism. They had just swapped out this realm of rituals, rites, and sacrifices for a new realm of rituals, rites and sacrifices, neither of which could ultimately provide salvation because those are all things we do, not what God does. That's the ditch that they were in. They were enslaved to religion. And so he's reminding them of the freedom that we have in Christ. At the end of the day, this isn't something that we add to the work of God. At the end of the day, uh, we're talking about salvation is the Lord's alone. So he's saying, hey, don't be slaves anymore, right? You don't want to go back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world. That's how he described it. 
And so here's, here's the question you and I should be asking ourselves as we read this repetitive message over and over and over. Works-based versus faith-based. Works-based versus faith-based. We need to be asking ourselves functionally, are we believers who believe in the work of God alone to save us? Do we believe in grace and faith, or do we believe in, in a works-based religion? Are we free or are we slaves? And so we have to examine how we think about salvation to determine these things. We're given a framework to think about these things. Are we, are we enslaved to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, as Paul describes? Or is it something that God has done alone that saved us? I, I want to keep coming back and framing it like that at the beginning of each one of these sermons so that you can really evaluate yourself. So Paul is he, he's doing right now what every good preacher should do. Starting at verse 21, he's deciding to, to change up his, his argument. You remember, and when he gets into Galatians, he's making a, an emotional appeal. He's, he's giving a testimonial appeal. He's telling stories. He's in their face. He's shaking them. You know, he's, he's appealing to their friendship. But right now, he's getting ready to appeal to the Old Testament. He's doing what every good preacher should do. If you've got a point, it better be a biblical point. Or it's no point at all. And so he's going to the Old Testament, to the law that they have now embraced for salvation. And he's seeing if they truly understand the law rightly. And so you and I are going to do the same thing today. So look at verse 21 to get started. Here's how he says it. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? I love the way he phrases that. Tell me all you works-based thinkers out there. All you, all you who insist upon rejecting faith in Christ alone, faith in grace alone, like, uh, that you insist on living under the law. Do you even listen to what the law says at all? Do you even Bible, bro? That's kind of what he's saying, right? He goes on in 22 and 23. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through the promise. He's saying, you guys remember Abraham and Sarah from the Old Testament, right? Now, they probably know about Abraham and Sarah because he's the one that taught it to them. Now, we know that in the Galatian churches, there's also people who were, who were brought up uh, ethnic Jews and religious Jews as well. It's a, it's a mix of those, but the, the, the larger part of the crowd there are pagans. But, so they were probably all taught about Abraham and Sarah, and rightly so. Every believer in God, whoever was, has their identity wrapped up in being a descendant of Abraham. That's the framework we're given to even understand the gospel in the first place. Right? When Paul is preaching there in the, in the previous chapter, in, in chapter 3, verse 29, he says, If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So yeah, if you want to make a real point about salvation, Abraham's a great place to go to. We should all be thinking about how we are connected to this promise made to Abraham. If you're a child of God, if you consider yourself to, to have salvation, the, that's the framework we're given. We are, we are a part of this promise that God made to Abraham and to his offspring, that is Jesus. And so when we are in Christ, we are heirs to that promise that you read back in Genesis 14, 15, and 16. And he said, remember that promise? Abraham had two sons. 
One by a slave woman and one by a free woman. So God had promised Abraham that he would have this heir. And he was really old when he received that promise, if you remember from reading back in Genesis. By the time God promises that he would have this heir and he would end up having more descendants than there are stars in the sky, Abraham was 75 years old whenever he receives this promise from God. So probably not thinking about making babies at that point in his life, being 75 years old. And so God promises him this, this promise to have all of these descendants and these, there's going to be redemption through his lineage, and 10 years go by. So you can imagine, again, being 75 years old and, and hearing this promise that you're going to have this heir, you haven't had any kids at this point in your life, and 10 years go by after that promise. Now you're 85 years old. Where's the fulfillment of this promise, God? You can, you, can, you can get why Abraham and Sarah started to feel a little insecure. God promised us this heir. It's been 10 years. I'm 85 years old now. Sarah was just 10 years younger. Now she's 75. Is this going to happen? A am I really going to have this promise given, you know, fulfilled you know, through, through God? Is he going to do this or not? Is this real or not? And so Sarah decides to do something about it. She decides to take matters into her own hands. Anytime we feel insecure about the promises of God, we're prone to do what Sarah does. Take matters into our own hands to try to make that promise true. And so Sarah, the way that she took matters into her own hands is that she got one of her younger maidservants, one of her slaves named Hagar, and she told Abraham, hey, impregnate Hagar, and you can have that heir that God promised us. She's trying to force that promise into happening. She's trying to take what God can do plus what she can do, what they can do, and equal that, the fulfillment of that promise that God made to them. And that's getting it wrong. Now, we know that was a bad idea on multiple levels, right? <laughs> Impregnate my slave, Hagar. Things can't go wrong, right? <laughs> That'll be a good thing, right? No, what are you thinking? No. Right? Anytime you see polygamy in, in Scripture and, or concubines, that sort of thing, it's wrong. It's a sin. And you'll hear people say, well, if it's wrong and it's a sin, why do people in the Bible do it? Because they're sinful. That's why they do it. That's why that happens. They're just like you and I. We make mistakes. We say we love God. We say we want to follow him. We say we love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But when you look at the life that we live, you see sin there. They're people just like you and I. And they tried to take matters into their own hands, and they sinned when they did that. And they made matters a thousand times worse. Without even reading that story, how well do you think they got along there whenever Abraham starts having sex with Hagar, the slave? Well, you know that's going to go wrong. And it did go wrong. Hagar got pregnant. Hagar had a son named Ishmael. And after Hagar has this son named Ishmael, you'll read in there in the, in the story back in Genesis that Hagar and Sarah start hating each other. You don't say. I can't believe it. Of course they started hating each other. They started looking at each other in contempt, with contempt. Hagar and Ishmael started hating Sarah. And, and so 15 years go by. So now... Just remember your timeline here. You got 75-year-old Abraham. Ten years go by. Now he's 
you got a kid with Hagar, and then 15 years more go by. You got 25 years from the promise, and guess what? God fulfilled his promise. Abraham, at 100 years old, 100 years old, impregnates Sarah. It's the promise fulfilled at 90 years old. Abraham, you dog. What in the Viagra happened there? I don't know. It was a miracle. Sarah provides this, the, she, she, through her womb, there's an heir. It's miraculous. It's supernatural. I, just yesterday, I, I, with this text fresh in my mind, I was hanging out with my great uncle and my great aunt, who are 90 and 89. And as they're helping each other through the lobby of the hotel and, and getting food, I'm thinking about this text the whole time. And I'm like, man. I'm not sure about the mechanics there. I, I mean, I was worried about the walker. I'm, hold, I'm, I'm doing this the whole, everywhere they go. It's a miracle. Isaac was born of the free woman, Sarah. Of course, they re you remember they named him Isaac. It, it means laughter. They're laughing. <laughs> it's, it's laughable. Ishmael was born of the slave woman, Hagar. Now, I know when you think about this story, if you're like me, you start to get down a rabbit trail. You, you start to think about the injustice that, that took place there towards Hagar. Poor Hagar, right? Poor Hagar. She's, you know, she's a slave. She's, uh, she's you know, wrapped up in this drama between Sarah and Abraham and caught up in all of these sinful circumstances and, and, and sinful consequences. But that's the point that Paul, Paul's using that sinful scenario to make a point here. He's making a doctrinal, theological point for us, and he doesn't want us to miss it. So this is such a great story to utilize. Whenever you take matters into your own hand and don't trust God for what he's going to do and what he can only do, you're going to make matters worse. You're going to mess stuff up. There's going to be consequences for your sin. And that's exactly what happened in, that, in, their, in their life. Don't get distracted by the, by the obvious injustice that took place there. Stay on task with the point Paul's trying to make. This is a sinful scenario here, and it's teaching us about salvation right now. He is using that sinful scenario as an illustration so that you and I can understand how salvation works so you and I don't get it wrong too. Look at verses 24 and 25. Here's how he says that. Now this, speaking of that scenario... Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. Let's just stop right there. He's saying, when you think about that old sinful scenario, Hagar and Sarah, they represent two covenants. The first covenant I want to point out, he says, is the, is the covenant that is, that is represented by Hagar. She represents Mount Sinai. You and I know what Mount Sinai is. That's where God gave Moses the law. The law that he's been talking about over and over and over in the book of Galatians. She represents Mount Sinai and the law, Hagar, he says, corresponds to present Jerusalem where they carry out the activities prescribed in the law. Now, we remember from books like the book of Hebrews, right, 
that all of this activity, all of this religious activity that takes place there is a shadow of heavenly realities, right? It, that, it was all setting up a framework so that we can understand what Jesus has done, so we can understand the gospel. It was all a shadow. None of it actually accomplished any salvation at all. It was teaching us so that we could understand our true salvation in a different covenant. And that's what he's getting ready to tell us about next. Look at verses 26 and 27, the second covenant he brings up. But the Jerusalem above, that other Jerusalem, that heavenly Jerusalem, but the, the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. So op opposed to the city of Jerusalem, physically and presently there on, on earth, right? he's speaking of that heavenly Jerusalem. The second covenant is a part of that heavenly reality that we learn about in Scripture. And so the Jerusalem above is free. That's what we, through Christ, are citizens of, that heavenly Jerusalem. We, too, have been made a part of this kingdom Supernaturally, through a supernatural birth, we are free children, created supernaturally, born again through what Christ has done. So it's, it's not anything that we have done. It's something only God can do. He uses, God uses impossible scenarios in Scripture so that you and I can understand the difference between when man accomplishes something and when God accomplishes something. And it works out that way in our lives too right now. When, when we identify something that is miraculous, it's obvious that there's no way we could have done this, right? So let me give you an example. Since we're talking about couples and having babies, I mean, we can think about two 20-year-olds getting married and they get pregnant and have a baby. It's easy to overlook the miracle in that. It's easy to overlook God in that because they're 20 years old and they got married and they're having kids. Okay, that's just kind of what happens. We, we say, congratulations. But when that same couple doesn't have a kid and grows old to the tune of 100 years old and 90 years old, and then they get pregnant and have a baby, well, now it's the couple that's overlooked, not God. We're thinking in that scenario, this could only be a work of God. There's only one explanation that's possible for this to happen. Man is unable to do that. So God, he uses those impossible situations so that he can't be overlooked. And so Paul, speaking of that second covenant, the covenant through the promise, he quotes a passage of scripture from the book of Isaiah chapter 54 verse 1. You'll notice in your Bible, and I tell you this all the time, but I like to repeat things because repetition is king when, when you're teaching something, right? Anytime you see those indentations there, you know something in, the, in, the, in scripture is being quoted. And so what he's quoting there is Isaiah 54. That's the translator's way of teaching us, hey, this is somewhere else in the Bible too. And so he's quoting Isaiah 54.1, and that was written at a time in which Jerusalem, or the Israelites rather, they were in another impossible situation that there's nothing they could do to get out of. They were in exile, in slavery to Babylon. And so Isaiah is this prophet that God used to give hope to his people in this impossible situation. And so the language that he uses, he describes them in exile as a barren woman, unable to conceive. But you're gonna, you're gonna actually, oh barren woman, you're gonna have more kids than, than those uh, women who have husbands. 
You're going you're to be fruitful and multiply. You're going to be given back this land in, in Jerusalem, and you're going to thrive there. So when they heard this prophecy, it gave them hope. And what Isaiah was doing, he was using language that reminded them of a moment 1,200 years in their past where Sarah was barren, and it was impossible for her to get pregnant. But yet God made a promise, and he fulfilled that promise. Something impossible happened. It was a miracle. He's using that language to describe the situation they're in. Their situation in exile, their restoration, it it followed the pattern of Sarah's life 1,200 years before. So that language is used to them, you know I fulfill my promises. I'm going to fulfill my promise again to you right now. You are going to be fruitful. You are going to be restored back to Jerusalem. So that gave them a tremendous amount of hope. Well, then 600 years after Isaiah wrote that, you got Paul, who's now borrowing that passage of Scripture in Isaiah 54, using that language to encourage the Christians in his day and to encourage you and I. You are a part of God's kingdom because he fulfills his promises not because of you. It gave them a tremendous amount of hope. This is how God's grace plays out. It always plays out in the most unexpected ways. It's a miracle. And of course, in their day, in that first century, they had the gospel of Jesus Christ because it, was, it had just happened in history. Yet another time in history in which an unexpected pre- pregnancy was the answer to God's promise. This time, in, in the day of Jesus, right, Mary wasn't, uh, it wasn't an unexpected pregnancy because she was old and barren. It was an unexpected pre- uh, pregnancy because she was a virgin. And it was a miraculous pregnancy that, that, that fulfills all of the Old Testament, and that provides the salvation for all of us. It's something that God has done. So you see patterns in Scripture like this that teach us, don't trust in what you can do. Trust in what God has done, what he is doing, and what he will do. Look at verse 28. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of the promise You're a product of something God has done if you're a Christian here today. We've had a supernatural birth as well. Jesus and his conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. What do I got to do to be a part of the kingdom of God? You got to be born again. There has to be a work of God. There has to be a fulfilled promise there, something that God has done. You have to be born again. Can you be born again? You didn't control your first birth, did you? (laughs) You were just born because you were. Our spiritual birth acts just like that. It's a work of God. We're born again because God has done something. This is grace alone. And it was that grace alone message that the Judaizers in Galatia had a problem with. Religious people always got a problem with grace. Grace means you can't take matters into your own hands. Religious people don't like that. Grace means I don't have the power to be my own savior. Religious people don't like that. Grace means I don't get any of the credit for my salvation. God gets 100% of the credit for my salvation. Religious people don't like that. Grace means it's, it's Jesus plus nothing equals my salvation. We used to say that when we planted the journey over and over. We, we loved, that was like our mantra when we planted this church. Jesus plus nothing equals our salvation. Religious people don't like that message. 
I mean, the, the, the people who have the, the most beef with the message of salvation that is grace alone are hands down people who want to take matters into their own hands when it comes to their salvation. Look at verse 29, and I'll read through verse 1 of chapter 5. He has one more lesson he wants to teach us by pointing to this Old Testament text. But just as at, the, at that time he who was born according to the flesh, that's Ishmael, persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, that's Isaac, so also it is now. But what do scriptures say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. That one last lesson that he wanted to use as an illustration of what they were experiencing in their day in Galatia. He said, remember when you read about Hagar and Ishmael's contempt for Sarah and Isaac? How they laughed at them, how they didn't like them, and that resulted in Sarah having to banish them? Again, we don't get, don't get tempted into taking the rabbit trail of the, of the injustice uh, situation there. It, it's terrible. But he's using it as an illustration to point something out. He's saying, you're going you're gonna to be persecuted by the situation of people taking matters into their own hands again. See, Isaac, he, he represents those who believe in faith alone, grace alone, salvation is solely the Lord's, birth according to the promise. Ishmael, he represents people who believe they can work their way to salvation. Jesus plus our works equal our, our salvation. He is born according to the flesh, he says. But works-based thinkers in religion. They always want to push back against grace. The more sovereign they find out God is in Scripture, the more they realize they're losing control of their salvation. And they try to white-knuckle it. They try to hold on. They try to grasp at any little thing. Well, if it's not this, it has to at least be this. Well, okay, if it's not that, it has to at least be this. They're just trying to grab onto anything to take any inkling of credit they can possibly get their hands on, just scrambling for something. And, and they'll, they'll give you 99.9% .9 of it, but they want to keep at least 0.01% of that control because they don't want to give it all up and say that God's completely sovereign. Well, he's either sovereign or he's not when it comes to your salvation. Which is it? You know, if you embrace the sovereign grace of God in salvation, just like we read in that catechism earlier today, the people that you will get pushback from theologically or doctrinally, they aren't the people that are anti-religion, right? They aren't the people who are non-religious. They're the religious people. They're people who call themselves Christians. That's who pushes back against the doctrines of grace more than anyone else on the planet Earth. It's Christians, just like those Judaizers in Galatia who called themselves Christians and made it a point to walk around pushing back against grace wherever that message existed, constantly seeking it out, following Paul around, calling themselves Christians, and then denying the gospel of grace that Paul was preaching, and that's all over our New Testament. 
That's my experience today, too, when I think about all the times in which I've gotten in deep conversations about the doctrines of grace. Very rarely does a non-Christian or a non-believer ever push back against the doctrines of grace or have a major problem with it. But I've lost count of how many times Christians want to debate me about it. I've lost count of how many times Christians want to get in my face and say, no, it's not grace alone. Well, we're either saved by something we do or we're saved by something God does. But there's one thing for sure. There is no middle ground. This, unlike many things, is a black and white situation. When you read in the New Testament, this is one of Paul's, I mean, he makes a ton of noise when it comes to this. He, he's, he's explicit, he's direct. He categorically, clearly, decidedly teaches that the people in the, in the we do camp, well, we got to do at least this camp. When you're in that camp, Paul says, you're slaves. You don't realize it, but you're slaves. You're slaves to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world. He says it over and over and over again. But those who put their faith in Christ alone, you've been set free from that way of thinking. He says, therefore, stand firm. Stand your ground when it comes to that. When people push back, stand still. Take it. They're going to push back. It's a hard message to get on board with. Deal with it. Stand firm where you are in the gospel of grace. And do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. People try to talk me out of the freedom that I have in Christ. Like, uh, yeah, no thanks. Slavery doesn't sound good to me. I like freedom. I think I'm going to stay in the freedom camp. That's where I'm going to remain. And so the question we need to ask ourselves when we, when we think about our salvation, as complicated and complex as it is sometimes when we get into the details and you try to dissect everything and every concept, are you like that sheep that's been saved by the gospel and you prance around a little bit in your faith and you end up right back in a different ditch? I think a lot of times Christians are saved by this gospel of grace and then they prance around in the different churches and different denominations and schools of thought and they end up right back in a new ditch. It's not Judaism this time. It's Christianity. That's the title of it. And they make a new law. They'll say, well, it's prayer time. Well, it's, it's baptism. Well, it's, it's Bible study. Well, it's church attendance. Well, it's, the, well, it's not those things. It's, it's, it's free will or it's this or it's that. And they just hang on to any little inkling of anything they can grasp a hold of. And when you do that, you've landed in the ditch again. And you need the gospel of grace to pull you back out of that. Live in the freedom that we have in Christ. That is the message of Galatians over and over and over again. Live in that freedom. You are a product. If you are a Christian today, you are a product of a work of God. He fulfilled his promise to Abraham. We're here. That's how we got here. And so we spend the rest of our lives trying to wrap our limited brain around that amazing concept. Why? Why would he save me? Why would he choose me? Well, it doesn't have anything to do about you, you narcissist. <laughs> right? We always want to make it about us. It has everything to do with God and his will. He is redeeming a people group for himself. And I have no reason to think there's anything about me that he would let me be a part of that. It's just his grace. That is freedom. And we want to share that freedom. We want to share that grace. And that's how we want to love people and show grace to people in our lives too. Not because they deserve it, 
they deserve it. It ceases to be grace at all. That defeats the whole concept of grace. We want to share God's grace in this world just like he shared it in our lives. He gave us a new birth. He made us new. We're a new creation in his son with new inclinations, new desires, so that we will choose him, so that we will love him. God loved us first. And our love and our choice and our, the way we live, it's in response to this redeeming work that he's done in our lives. Let's pray. Lord, being confronted with the doctrines of grace can be so disorienting because every other relationship and situation in our life is so conditional. Every relationship that I have with any other human being on this planet Earth, it's conditional. But Lord, you have this unconditional love. I didn't meet any requirement to be loved by you. I didn't provide anything. I didn't meet any standard. I, I, I didn't learn more than the person next to me. I have nothing to point to in my life. We just have faith in your grace. Lord, we thank you for your grace that you've shown us in our lives, and we want to live in, in reflection of that in this world. Help us to love the unlovable. Help us to show grace to those maybe who have never been shown grace before in their lives. Lord, we know that sovereignly that's the means by which you share your gospel in this world and save souls. Or the, the thought that you would allow us to participate in, in it in that way is just mind-boggling. So, Lord, help us, though, to find that rest, to find that peace that we have in the freedom of your gospel today as we take communion. And, Lord, help us to do this all to your glory. In your name we pray. Mm -hmm.